Good evening, everyone. Let us begin. Good to see you all again. Thank you for coming, putting up with me all these weeks. Let us pray. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Amen. So which psalm is that? <laughs> I have to look it up myself. Psalm 25. The first seven verses of Psalm 25. All right. We're going to hopefully do quite a few different things today. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. This was some that. Let's do a little this now. The psalm superscriptions, I'm sure you have noticed, and probably most of you know this stuff already, but uh, there are superscriptions, that is, writings before the actual psalm begins, uh, that give us a little bit of an idea of uh, where the psalm comes from, at least according to Jewish tradition. So some of them that we see are like this. It'll say, a psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph, or a psalm of Jeduthun, and so forth. First Chronicles 25.1, we read an account of David as he is preparing for worship in the temple. And it says, David set apart some of the sons of Asaph. Well, there is Asaph, we just talked about him. And Haman and Jeduthun for the ministry of prophesying accompanying, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. And so we will see those names, David and Asaph and Jeduthun. I don't know that Haman comes up much, but certainly Jeduthun and Asaph come up. I'm not sure I'm putting the accent on the right syllable, but that's how I'm saying it tonight. Psalm 4, the superscription says, for the director of music. Well, that's what Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun were. They were the directors of music for the temple worship with stringed instruments. There's another indication that these psalms were done with instruments as well. And then it says a psalm of David. Now, that's vague. Are we saying that David wrote the psalm? Are we saying that it's a psalm in the style of the psalms that David wrote? Does it mean something else? Uh, as far as my study has taken me, nobody knows for sure. Uh, 
exactly what it means to say a psalm of David, or for that matter, a psalm of any of these people. For instance, look at the next one, Psalm 39. Again, it's for the director of music. And then it says for Jeduthun, who was one of the directors of music. And it too is a psalm of David. So for Jeduthun, again, what, what does that actually mean? Was it something that uh, Jeduthun had in his uh, repertoire of psalm settings to do when he was in charge? Uh, to say any more than what I'm saying is more than most any commentary I've come in, in contact with is willing to say. Again, we don't know. Psalm 58, it says, again, for the director of music, to the tune of, or as it says in the English Standard Version, according to, do not destroy. So that's the name of a tune. And so we know then that uh, they knew to say, or sing Psalm 58 to the music of uh, whatever do not destroy was. And then it says, of David. And then it tells us it's a miktam. And we'll hear more about that in just a minute. Uh, then Psalm 78, it says it's a maskil of Asaf. Well, what's a maskil? Well, uh, you can notice in your Bibles that there is a group of maskils, verses 52 to 55. There's a bunch of miktams, or would that be miktai if it's plural? I don't know. 56 to 60, uh, Gittith, 8, 81, and 84, a type of poetry, seems to be the best guess that we have for what those mean. So a miktam would be kind of like saying a haiku, you know what kind of poetry. But again, that's just a guess, we don't know. The other thing we see so many times in the psalm, it, psalms is the word selah. Selah. And I've heard uh, a lot of Bible commentators talk as if they know what that means. But according to, again, the research I've done over the years, nobody, again, really knows what it means. It uh, seems the best guess of the scholars, and I am not a scholar in this regard, um, seems to be a musical instruction. Maybe it's a point at which you take a break and the musicians do something special. Who knows? But it probably is some sort of a musical instruction. It does not mean peace. It does not mean anything else that you might hear at certain points. It just means we don't know what. All right. Now, another interesting thing about the Psalms is that there is a group of Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And if you care to, you can remember that because the number three almost looks like the number eight. So 113 to 118 is a set of Psalms that's called the Egyptian Hallel. Well, what's that all about? Well, we do know that Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise such as the word hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. So these are, the hallel would be the praises. And it's, they're called Egyptian because Psalm 44, 
or Psalm 114, which is in the middle of the Hallel, speaks about coming out of Egypt. It reads at what point, when Israel came out of Egypt and the house of Jacob from among the strange people. By the way, what kind of, uh, what kind of parallelism is that? When Israel came out of Egypt and the house of Jacob from among the strange people. Synonymous, house of Jacob, Israel, same thing. Oh, it's working, that's, that's great. Israel, the house of Jacob, the house of Jacob is Israel and came out of Egypt is the strange people, the Goyim. I guess you might argue that it gives you a little bit more. What do you mean by Israel? Well, I mean the house of Jacob. And what about the Egyptians? Well, they're the strange people. I think synonymous is probably what I would say too, but uh, again, you can sometimes argue about these. Well, these, uh, this Hallel was sung during the Passover and at some other festivals as well. 13 and 14, the beginning of the Hallel, would be recited before the meal and then 15 through 18 after the meal. So in Mark 14, 26, when we were told that when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Probably that hymn was part of the Hallel. So that's a, a little special part about the Psalms to keep in mind. Well, again, they're 113 to 118 for the Hallel. It's interesting, the arrangement of Psalms just before and just after the Hallel. Psalms 111 and 112, and that's right before the Hallel, and then right after it, Psalm 119, are acrostics, which envelop, which surround the Hallel. And as you know, an acrostic is a poem, a word puzzle, or other composition in which certain letters of each line form a word or words. So let's take a look at Psalm 19. Is that big enough that we can all read it? Let's read it together, just straight through. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart, when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now that's Aleph. Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now it says Beth. And so you would start a second series of eight verses that all begin with the Hebrew letter B. And here, in fact, is how it would look in the Hebrew. That's Aleph, that's Aleph, that's Aleph, Aleph, Aleph. 
<clears throat> and then we get to verse 9, and the poet starts to think of nine or eight sections that all start with Beth. And sure enough, there it starts with a B for the word Beth. An acrostic. There's a lot of them in the Bible. Psalms 9 and 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, 119, 145 are all acrostics. And they're not just in the Bible. You can find acrostics in Lamentations, the first four chapters. Proverbs 31 has a section that is done in the style of an acrostic. It's a common uh, ancient Mideast uh, technique for poetry. Let's take a look at this psalm again in a little more detail. We're not going to dissect it like we have some of the psalms. We'll do some more of that, but I uh, just want to point out a few things that, again, I expect most of you know already. It is the longest psalm, and now, if you didn't know before, now you know why because uh, you're, you've got to have eight verses for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Well, that takes you up to 176 verses altogether. It's a massive hymn of praise for God's word. Look at the language again. Blessed are those whose, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies Walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts, the idea of the law again, uh, all the way through, not just Aleph, but all the way through the whole psalm. You can see where it's a, a hyper meditation on uh, what God's law is and the benefits of following it and the problems if you don't follow it. There are verses that you probably know well that you've seen that uh, come from this very long psalm. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah. yeah. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I remember as a little kid about this tall sitting in Bible school and being taught that verse. I can still hear the kid next to me saying it. <laughs> he had kind of a speech impediment. I can still hear the way he said that verse. Uh, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Some very famous sections of Psalm 119. Well, again, uh, going back to stuff that we might have said in the beginning, but I wanted to not have too long an introduction and, and get right into some Psalms studies right off the bat. So that's the way I approached it. But let's just back up a bit and fill in some general information. I remember uh, in ancient history class, it would have been seventh or eighth grade, I was already a very religious weird young kid and I remember our teacher talking about the Psalms and and he said that some of the Psalms were written by David well I was incensed I didn't say anything about that but I knew very well that all the Psalms were written by David 
well, he was right and I was wrong, as I <laughs> learned later on. It's a compilation, as we've already seen by many authors, including David. And, of course, we, I think it's fair to say primarily David. And we know that the Psalms were the hymn book of ancient Israel, uh, collected and gathered bit by bit over many years into a final compilation that, uh, as far as I my studies have taken me, probably didn't really come together as the 150 that we know until uh, the time of uh, their uh, exile into Babylon, or maybe even after they came back. But, of course, the Psalms had been going on <laughs> a long time before that. Ancient Jews used the Psalms. I mean, their, their religious life was just drenched in the Psalms. The temple, when the synagogue developed, uh, they were the prime part of that. In people's private devotions, the Psalms uh, played key roles in all of that. We know that choirs of Levites sang whenever sacrifices were offered. Now let's just review about the Levites. What made them special among the tribes of Israel? They were the priestly tribe. They were the ones assigned the duties, and they only, uh, the, the duties of uh, work in the temple, all kinds of works and jobs in the temple. And one of those jobs, as we'll read about in just a minute, was uh, the music program, Haman, Jedithan, and Asaph, the three leaders uh, who, with their children, were in charge of the music program that we just saw. Here's a verse about that, 1 Chronicles 23. When David was old and full of years, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. He also gathered together all the leaders of Israel, as well as the priests and the Levites. The Levites, 30 years old or more, were counted. And the total number of men was 38,000. David said, of these, 24,000 are to be in charge of the work of the temple of the Lord, and 6,000 are to be officials and judges. 4,000 are to be gatekeepers, and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the musical instruments I have provided for that purpose. Now that kind of gives you pictures of the Mormon tabernacle choir sitting, standing in the temple, uh, these thousands of singers. But uh, remember, uh, as, again, as you probably know, they were divided up and they would each have their week where they would go into the temple and do their duties and then they'd go back home to their Levitical towns throughout Israel and go about their more normal lives. But they needed that many so that they had the resources they needed for throughout the year. All right, that was First Chronicles 23. Two chapters later, we read this. David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. Once again, you see this interrelationship with prophesying, 
and music making. Here is the list of the men who performed this service. I'm not going to bother reading all these names, but from the sons of Asaph, and then you have quite a few names coming in there. Then verse 3, as for Jeduthun, from his sons, and then a little further down, as for Haman and his sons. <clears throat> and then we get down to verse 7, along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord. They numbered 288. And these were the leaders. Remember, there's 4,000 uh, musicians in all. But there's 288 uh, all related uh, in blood to Asaph, Jeduthun, and Haman uh, who uh, do the leadership roles for the music program. Now, as a, a trained musician myself, I look at that and I have always had great comfort and seeing the incredible importance that our Lord places on music in his worship, how essential it is from his perspective. Uh, it leads me to all sorts of thinking about uh, what God intended from music in the very beginning. What powers did he place in it? What abilities to communicate non-verbally? Uh, did he instill when he created music uh, that makes this so important for him? And in many New Testament churches today, modern churches today where music is downplayed, which in, in my tradition as a Presbyterian was, was quite an issue because music was often to be reduced to its most simple formats. Uh, the, the friction between that way of thinking and what I read about God's concern about music in the Old Testament uh, was always a, a live friction that was going on that I, that I had to work my way through. And I dealt with that. Uh, as most of you know, I wrote a book while I was in seminary, and it, it deals in large part with that friction between Old Testament uh, commands by God about music New Testament times and how that played out in history. Well, enough of all that. I digress. But, uh, I, I, I need to emphasize in God's eyes the real importance there is for God in his gift to us of music. And uh, I think we all know deep down inside that it's more powerful than we often think about. And that, like all God's good gifts, goes both ways. The power of music when used in godly ways for good and when music is used uh, in less godly ways or even sinful ways, the destructive power that can be involved in that area too. And there's much to talk about in all of that that uh, we won't get into right now. <clears throat> Moving on in our section from uh, the Old Testament. They were also, that is these 288, they were also to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord. They were to do the same in the evening, morning prayer, evening prayer. And whenever burnt offerings were presented to the Lord on the Sabbath, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, they were to serve before the Lord regularly in the proper number and in the way 
prescribed for them. Again, from the best I have learned in my study, I could be wrong, could be wrong about so many things. Uh, If there was a sacrifice going on, there was a choir singing. No choir, no sacrifice, no sacrifice, no choir. They're strongly linked and connected. There's even a specific point in the whole process of the sacrifice of the animals at which the choirs sang. I have read that many times and I have forgotten it many times, but I think it may be the part in which the animal's throat was cut. So ancient and modern synagogue services then uh, are filled with the Psalms. Early Christians continued synagogue worship. When you stop and think of it, how did early Christians worship? The very earliest Christians went to the temple to worship. They went to the synagogue like they always did. And then eventually there's friction there. They get uh, kicked out of the synagogues, uh, not welcome anymore. But they continue with the prayers, the teaching, and the psalms, just like they were doing in the synagogue. But there's something else that the Christians are doing now that, that wasn't done in the synagogue. What would that be? The Last Supper. Yeah. Early Christians continued synagogue-styled worship even after they separated from the synagogues. A Jewish or a, a Christian service from its beginnings, from its inception, was a synagogue service with the Lord's Supper attached to it. Word and sacrament. When I was a Presbyterian pastor, that was my title. I'm minister of word and sacrament. That's what a Presbyterian minister is called. Equal, word and sacrament. We know that St. Paul urged the use of Psalms. He He says in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as with all wisdom you teach and admonish one another. How? With psalms and hymns, spiritual psalms. When I was teaching a worship course at Erskine Seminary, we spent a lot of time in this. What is a psalm? What is a hymn? What is a spiritual song? What does Paul mean by these three things? Again, there's no way to know for sure. There's a lot of conjecturing but we don't really know. And I don't want to take time today to get into all of that because uh, we could talk at great length about that. Uh, But at any rate, Psalms, which is our point of interest, is included there as a means to teach and admonish. And I always bring out the point that part of what Paul is telling us here is that our time of worship together isn't just about me and God. We could do that at home. We could read the Bible all by ourselves. We could pray all by ourselves. But when we come together as the body of Christ in corporate worship, why why are we told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together? Because there's the power of the Spirit that's at work there. And Paul tells us part of what that, and again, we, we could talk a great length about all the implications of that. That could be a whole course in itself, too. But what Paul is telling us is that when we come together, we sing. 
And our singing isn't just something that has a pretty melody that we like to hear or reminds me of Grandpa when he was around. We're teaching who? Each other. When we stand and sing, and boy, do I appreciate the way you folks sing in church. I don't know that I have ever been in a church where the singing is as robust as what goes on here. And it warms my heart every Sunday morning. It makes me want to play my very best because you're singing your very best. But that's not just you and God going on there. You're teaching. Those hymns, those psalms are teaching utensils. They're ways to admonish, to warn, to correct each other, each other. We have a ministry in church, whether we have any official function in that way or not, we have a duty and a delight in our ministry of singing to be encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be having a really tough time of it. They may not be so sure about some aspect of their faith, but they, they look up at the front and they see Jack standing there and Jack sings. And it's hard not to see Jack because he's right there in the front every week. <laughs> and he stands and he says the creed and he sings uh, like he means it. And that's an encouragement. That's an instruction. That's an admonishment to everybody who's around there. So never underestimate your presence in worship and the effect your participation your meaningful, heartfelt, spirit-led participation in worship. Never underestimate the impact that is having on your brothers and sisters. I will also say never underestimate the impact of your absence. Oh. When you're not there for a month, it's felt. People feel it and can't even put their finger on it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Another verse. Paul urges us in uh, Ephesians with the same thing. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In our conversations, are we so familiar with the psalms that we find ourselves referring to them in our conversations with each other? Uh, I'm not there yet, to my shame, for a whole lifetime of working with the psalms. But uh, maybe more than I realize if I really stop to think about that. But this is Paul's, uh, I was about to say Paul's suggestion, but this isn't an ex a suggestion from Paul, is it? Uh, he's, he's telling us that something we should do. All right. So, of course, we know that the Psalms remained a central part of Christian worship. There was no period in the church's history where the Psalms were not central. You know that. All right, let's get more specific now about Anglican worship, which, uh, again, if you're paying any attention at all, you know that uh, Anglican worship is drenched in psalmody. Here is a very partial list of hymns based on psalms from the 1940 hymnal. That is to say, these are metrical psalms. They are deliberate attempts to take a psalm, and there you see Psalm 23, Psalm 46, 72, some of them you probably never thought of as psalms before. 
but they are. Even joy to the world is a song. But they've done as has been the tradition with metrical psalms all along the way. They take the psalm and they turn it into a poem uh, such that each stanza has just a few lines and then there's the next stanza with exactly the same meter so it can be sung the entire psalm or whatever part they choose to work with and uh, have the same simple tune being used for each one of them. Look over that list. I'll bet you know every one of those. It would be an interesting task. See, I just really got to hymn number one or, or to Psalm 104, uh, and I'm sure I missed some along the way too. Uh, but just in our 1940 hymnal, it would be an interesting study to see just how many psalms are directly based, how many hymns are directly based on psalms. Some of the later attempts, I don't know if we'll get into this or not, but in the 1700s, people like Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley start uh, opening the door for psalm interpretations that are not such a literal sentence-by-sentence sentence, uh, reworking of the psalm. They skip around from various verses. Uh, uh, j uh, joy to the world is, is one like that. If you read Psalm 96 on one side, and joy to the world on the other side, there's not a verse by verse uh, comparison going on there. But as you read and study joy to the world and then read the psalm, you know, okay, it's down here in verse nine. I see where he got that idea from. It's still largely based on them, even if it's not as rigorous as some of the earlier Puritan psalms were. Choir anthems by the thousands are based on the Psalms. The book of Psalms is in fact the most quoted book in the New Testament. And it's the book Jesus most often quotes. Again, the centrality of the Psalms is uh, just monumental. Now, what does that mean? That means at times we're hearing the Psalms as well when the gospel and the epistle lessons are read because they too are drenched with ideas and sometimes direct quotes from the Psalms. Okay, now this gets us then into the subject of something that we do here a little bit, but is really done in the larger churches and in the cathedrals uh, uh, to the nth degree. And that is the kind of sing, another way to sing the Psalms that allows one to not have to change the wording, to take the word straight from the Bible and sing the psalm to music um, word for word. You don't even need, if you know the tune, you don't even have to have anything but your Bible and you can uh, do the psalm just, just as it is. But let's get back to where this comes from. By the way, you notice the way they're standing this choir? Right? Antiphonal. And what is it there? What is the antiphon? What is the echoing that's going on here? 
the parallelism in the Psalms. Yeah, mm-hmm. back and forth. Uh, It can be done a number of ways. I think I talk about this later on. It can be uh, antiphonal, which is one side, the choir on one side singing the first part of the verse, the other part answering with the second part of the verse with the parallel structure. It can be between a soloist and the choir. That is called responsoral psalms where there's a response. The, The soloist sings the first part and the congregation, or maybe just the choir, sings the second part uh, different ways. Choir and congregation, it could be done that way too. Where does it come from? What kind of a tradition is this that we have as Anglicans? By the way, um, you can see where our church over here would have that design if there wasn't that nasty old organ sitting over there. Because uh, you, you could have, as, and I believe at one point there was choir seated on the organ side too, earlier on. Okay. Okay, yeah. But you can see by the design of it, if it wasn't for the organ that was there, you could have choir exactly in the arrangement we just saw in those pictures. Our, our building allows for that. Okay, Nehemiah 12. The family had, okay, Nehemiah, let's get our heads uh, straight. Uh, Israel's back from its uh, captivity in Babylon. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem as they've come back. The family heads among the descendants of Levi, the priestly tribe, were recorded in the book of the Annals. And the leaders of the Levites who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the other, as prescribed by David, the man of God. What were they singing? They were singing psalms. (laughs) And they're responding one group to the other. Then Nehemiah says, Then I brought the leaders up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half the people on the wall. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and the singers sang with Jezrehiah, their leader. Well, there you see it. Again, how even way back in the time of Nehemiah, this antiphonal singing, this sense of parallelism was inherent in in how they, in this case, did their festival. Okay, so let's take a look at some actual Anglican chant. This is from our hymnal. From the bear of the dead, the text, God is our hope and strength, the very present help in trouble. Psalm, I've forgotten already, 46. Okay. All right. So this is right out of our hymnal, and you see the parallel structures here going on. By the way, I'm well aware that when we sing in church, uh, when we say the Psalms, we do it verse by verse. And you probably caught that what I'm pointing out here is different from our tradition here. Well, it's different from the tradition in just about every 
Anglican or Episcopal church I've been involved in. And when you hear the, the great choirs in uh, Europe sing Anglican chant, more often than not, in my experience, they're doing it verse by verse by verse. I don't know where that tradition got started. There's a lot of smart people in Anglicanism that know all about parallelism in the Psalms, but for some reason that's not the tradition in the church. But since we're talking about the Psalms and the, the kind of poetry, I think it's necessary that we keep in mind the parallel structures that are going on here. And, and so it's clearly marked here. Uh, one side of the choir, the other side of the choir. First side of the choir, second side of the choir, etc., etc. Notice it's written in four-part harmony, sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses. So uh, it's not plain chant. Sometimes in the beginning, and we'll talk more about this, too. I don't know how much time we'll actually have, but uh, earliest attempts at Anglican chant, the melody that was used was things that they had garnered from the, the Roman Catholic musical settings. Uh, as I'll show in a little bit, Anglican chant doesn't get started until much later. Much later. I mean, really. Uh, there were attempts to start it earlier, but things kept changing. But anyway, uh, my point is that this is a tune arranged for Martin Luther. Well, what hymn did Luther write that's based in Psalm 46? A mighty fortress is our God. How does the melody go? Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 All right? But it's turned into plain chant. So I'd like you uh, to listen to it. This setting, by the way, is antiphonal. I can't tell on the CD whether one side is singing and the other side. I've been to Cambridge, England, at King's College Chapel, and they often do sing it that way there. I don't know what they're doing here, I can't tell. But it's Psalm 46, God is our hope and strength, adapted from Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. It's done by uh, Sir David Wilcox's King's College Choir in Cambridge. If you like what you hear, you can get it. It's from the CD, The Psalms of David, Volume 1. And it's some mighty fine listening. All right, I just, uh, I'm going to see if I can escape from this without messing everything up. Like right now, I can't even get my arrow to. Well, there it was. But why can't I get, there's my arrow. All right, here we go. Thank you. 
Any thoughts? Yeah, that's men and boys. It's men and boys. And I believe it was being sung typically uh, for one side or the other. I think so too. And then they were doing all of Psalm 46 in its entirety. This portion of the hymnal was just what was used for the burial of the dead. So they left out a few verses and then they sung So, so how musical was Martin Luther? I mean, we know him for his scholarship and his revolutionary activities, but how, how, was he a trained musician? Yes, he was a trained musician. So what other music did he compose? He played the lute. Played it very well. Uh, he took a lot. This was one of the differences between Luther and Calvin. Luther took many of the old Latin Roman uh, hymns that were in plain chant and rearranged them uh, again into a metrical hymn, re redid the tune, but kept the, the melody as much in cohesion as, as he could. Uh, if you know the old uh, Latin hymn, Vita Mai Pascale Laudis, which is the big Easter hymn, uh, he took that and, and made it into an Christ Log and Totus Bond, in Christ's Land, the Bonds of Death, is based on an old, old plain chant. And, and there are others, too. Um, out of the depths, out of the depths have I called to thee, is another sample of that. So the Lutherans are doing uh, psalm settings too, but they're doing a lot of free hymns as well. They're just not as limited uh, as, as the others. Okay. I'll say it's possible that the, the, the reason that the tradition isn't universal to split the verse in half by call and response is simply what uh, we to, to reduce confusion and stumbling, because you really have to pay attention. It's true. And and uh, not every minister believes that their congregation is going to be right on it, and so it's easier yeah. to just do the whole verse. But if we were, if we could easily change at St. George. There's plenty of traditional Anglican churches that break at the asterisks yeah. and do a sort of right. And I'm gonna uh, actually it. Doesn't look like it's going to happen today, but next week I'm going to show you a very simple, uh, reduced form of Anglican chant. I used to be the organist when I was in seminary. <laughs> I was at a Presbyterian seminary and I was organist at St. James Episcopal Church on Piney Mountain Road here in Greenville. Uh, and that congregation sang the psalm every week. Everybody sang it. And it was the same tune and... and that's why I have the piano out. I thought we might get to that today. But we're going to do some of that here. We're going to, we're going to sing psalms that's really not hard at all. If the tune is simple and basic enough. I was just going to say Father Stern. He always pauses at the asterisk. And the first time he did that, I thought, is he waiting for us to pick up the second half? But he doesn't. He always pauses. you go and visit the church the Epiphany in... Columbia, you'll see that all the clergy there do that. They all put this pause mm -hmm. at the asterisk, but they're going to read the next part, but they're going to stop. Yes. 
and then continue it. If you get used to it, it's easy. If you, if you actually switch at the asterisk, it's even easier. But if you're going to sing, that gets tricky. If I right. sing the first half and you sing the second half, boy, you really have to be honest. Especially if it's something oh. as complex as this. Yeah, like a two or three lines. Yeah. Some, some of the tunes are one line long, and it just repeats. Well, I, yeah, I was going to point that out. Do you, you, do you see the double bar line here? Right. This, is a, this is actually a double chant. Yeah. Duh. God is our hope and refuge, our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And then, rather than going back here again, there's a second part of it. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the hills be carried into the midst of the sea. So, up until you get to the little stroke here, you're singing everything on the same starting note. Some of the settings are four lines long, so you have to really pay attention, especially if your song uh, has verses that don't divide equally exactly. into the number of lines you have. Then you have to do a half of a line halfway through the song. And that's, <laughs> yeah. You know what, what Father Stern does, I think that from a musician's standpoint of view, it's a two-beat pause. And you could do that. Like, God is our hope and strength. One, two, a very present help in time of trouble. You can get used to that. You can get used to that. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be moved. One, two, and through the hills, you know, you can get used to that. You can get used to that. Mm -hmm. Just thinking one, two, in between. The, the uh, other church, churches, when they're priests of the great one can't do. The people as the congregation pause also at those. The only place that I know where they put that pause in is in the Diocese of Holy Cross Church in the Epiphany. And when I get from St. Barnabas and every other church I've been to, there's never that pause. But what usually happens is when, the, when we come to this altar, the person who's leading will say, We will read responsibly by whole verse or half verse. He'll give the instruction. And then everybody will say, Oh, it's half verse. Oh, it's whole verse. Mm -hmm. It's just what we do at St. George to be whole verse. But I could very easily this Sunday say we will read responsibly by half verse, and then suddenly you got to read. You know, you got to really pay attention because I'm going to stop halfway through the verse and you're on. You know? So it, it, it's just uh, the more changes you put in week by week, the more disorienting it can be to people that just came to worship, not. But there's always that star, that asterisk, asterisk. which makes it very clear when the it's change clear. takes place. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's 8 o'clock or thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, there's no point in going any further today. Anything else? Anybody wants to throw into the pot here? Fabulous. Uh, you were uh, talking about the different types of psalms. Uh, I was curious about the psalms of ascent. The psalms of the ascent? Ascent. Yes, but we're going to talk about that next week. Helicopter stuff. What is it? Meant for helicopter people. That's what it was. It was about helicopters. It was, it, it was the wheels that you read about. And, everything uh, everything comes back to helicopters. Yeah. Yeah. When we did the Alliance demo, we came to, we, had, we put in a Psalter. And uh, the Psalms of Lament, we wanted to put in Psalms of Lament, but 
the church culture being as it was, it was a, it was a um, oh, what would you call it? Uh, praise and worship was supposed to be happy. Yeah. You know, so the word lament, I had to go to my my uh, Old Testament friend and say, is there another word? And I think we put it in reflections. Did we Psalms of reflections? But we, we just knew that the word lament wasn't going to go, except for you need to lament at times. Amen, bro. And our services were such that there was no room for lament. You know? When I was at Erskine Seminary, we uh, did a, a project. Uh, well, I just noticed that the Presbyterian Church uses a revised common lectionary, which again is the schedule of Bible readings, and it was a three-year lectionary. So they covered a good hunk of scripture over a three-year period of time. But I noticed with the Psalms that they always stop when the lament began and skip over it and then get down to the end again. And there was virtually not one psalm in that whole revised common legendary that was, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Kind of a psalm. It just never wasn't there. And I, I showed it to some of my colleagues there, and they were amazed. Yeah, we've got to keep things happening. Oh, I don't know what readings are doing. Probably the only reading in Job is I know that my Redeemer is. <laughs> yes. I was just going to point out since everyone's paying close attention that you'll see on the the text there a vertical line between our and hope. Of course, indicating that at this point the note changes. So if you've been holding on to the note C, God is our, you're wondering which word. Do I shift to the next note? That vertical line between our and hope indicates you're going to shift now to the next note. Also, if you see a word that has a bold, like see the word trouble, it's bold on T-R-O-U. That's because within that T-R-O-U, you're going to change notes. A very present oh, help in trouble. But you won't go trouble, you'll go da 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 trouble. When, when it's in bold, it means within that word, you're going to be shifting notes. So, oh, uh, that's not the way they sang it. This is not, they didn't sing the same words either. Yeah. So not they're using a different translation. Yeah, yeah. They weren't following this, but if you're oh, going to sing those notes with these words, that's what bold means. It means you'll be shifting uh, wherever it's bold. Okay. Thank you. I didn't know that. And when there's no bold, it means there's enough syllables in this phrase to account for all of the note changes it will have to do. But if the end of the phrase is short, somewhere in one of those words, you're going to have to put an extra note. And to know which word to do the extra note, they make it bold. So that section of the word trouble is where That's why when you, when you come to church and we say we're going to chant together uh, this canticle, everybody goes, oh boy, I'm never sure which note to shift on. Well, it's hard in the prayer book, but if you're in the hymnal section, the hymnal is all notated like that, so you can follow it more closely, but it takes a little while to get the hang of it. It, uh, it doesn't work that way here. I'm not disagreeing with you, but the way they've set this up, a very present help in times of, or oh, a very present help. In, oh, trouble. There's trouble. See, I've got a different translation in my head. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I may be doing things wrong uh, when we do our early 
uh, prayer service. Well, uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on it. carried into the midst of the sea. Midst of the sea. Like you maybe say two words on the same on one. Yeah, it, it could be syllables. Syllables so more than words. Trouble is one one syllable in two notes. You know what I mean? Trouble or whatever. You know what I mean? And most highest or something like that. That's that typically what it sounds like. And if you've got the dot in the middle, I guess that's telling you you're you're going to be shifting notes here a lot in this section. It would be helpful if we had the music that lined right up with the, with the words that I have. Well, it's almost like um, you can imagine somebody coming in from that this is not for congregations to sing. Right. This can be adapted through simpler music forms, and that's what we will demonstrate right. here next week. But this complications of making the music fit this, that's for a choir who's been practicing. Yeah, I think something else about this whole idea, um, we need to remember that the early church had room for visitors. But the visitors were kind of in the back watching because everybody say a Greek came into a synagogue uh, where Christians were worshiping and the Lord's Supper and 
you realize they weren't invited to the Lord's Supper because at the point of the Lord's Supper, all those who were not communicants left. You know, so they there was always room for visitors in there, but the visitors were visitors, and they were watching this, and they could choose whether it was necessary to become part of it. But you know, they didn't walk right in and all of a sudden take communion and do everything. You know, no, that wasn't for them. And and so we had Greeks and Romans and, and all these kind of people in those early services, uh, and seeker sensitive was just. What was happening here was so powerful that they were, they were drawn to it. I mean, seeker is different than yes. visitor. Yes. There's two different things. If you're really seeking, you'll find. If you're just coming in and poke your nose at the door, see if you like this, that's not seeking. Yeah. yeah. So well, you're also going, I feel in our church service, we're going up to meet God from a lowly point. Most churches here is. This is colloquial, and I hate it, but you're his buddy and his friend, and I have issues with that one too. But we can, that's another argument. But we're supposed to step up in our worship, even though we bow. We don't come in to be on par. And when we're up, we're going up. That's why we have our altar is higher than we sit. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, it is 10 after, so perhaps we ought to stop at this point. Continue whatever conversations you want. That's great, but uh, we stand dismissed.